Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. So today I'm going to speak on, um, this is drawn from the book that I just completed. It's called The Humble Cosmopolitan, Rights, Diversity, and Trans-State Democracy. And this is drawn from a chapter um, on the work of B.R. Ambedkar, who I'll introduce in a moment. And the title is Ambedkar on Embracing the Fiction of Equality. So... Just an overview, um, I think, uh, so I, I keep encouraging grad students to talk about the novelty and significance of their uh, presentation. So the novelty here is that, you know, what's new about it? It draws insights from the work of Ambedkar, who's, who's increasingly well-known, but his work is still not that well-known, especially in um, certain fields. Um, but he's a, a well-known thinker in India, constitutional architect, and I'll introduce him in a moment. But to intervene in current dialogues on human dignity and moral equality, now you might ask, why human dignity? Didn't we settle that back in 1945 or maybe even 1789, that sort of thing? Well, actually... Um, as you know, uh, dignity, human and moral equality serves as the ground for human rights in major treaties, constitutions, theoretical treatments. You know, everyone, everyone cites the dignity of the human being, but recently uh, some theorists have begun to critique it. They've, they've said this is incoherent. Um, you know, why should we accept that people are morally equal? And I'll lay out the problem, the, the challenge in the next slide. So some of the practical implications, um, you know, moral equality is also rejected or, or um, status equality by some states, cultures, you know, gender equality, political equality. There are differential citizenships in certain places, racial or caste equalities. So, okay. So those are the practical implications. So what's the core claim of the paper is that Abedkar gives us reason to adopt the conception of high equal moral worth rather than dignity and to embrace the fiction of equality even if some strict empirical human equality can't be established. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, that's the core challenge. Now, if you'll notice here, we've got two pictures side by side. There's Albert Einstein, who's generally believed to have some well-developed human capacities uh, for rational thought, etc. And then there's a guy laying on the grass um, about to get a golf ball smacked off his nose um, by the other guy who's standing up. So one might think uh, this might be evidence that uh, humans possess capacities to varying degrees. And uh, the core challenge is deriving a constant from a variable. If the constant is a claim about human equal moral worth, uh, and yet the, um, what we're grounding it in is uh, a variable or are variables, capacities, people possess varying capacities to varying degrees, then that seems to be a problem. That, certainly that's what the critics have been highlighting lately. I say, you know, you talk to me about human capacities, about rational agency and everything, but look at how varied humans are in their possession of these capacities. So why should we think that these variable capacities ground a, a standard, baseline, unvarying um, commitment to equal moral worth, to equal moral status, and equal political status flowing from it? So dignity claims seek to ground an equal moral status for all persons and equal rights flowing from it. Uh, they're typically grounded in distinctive human capacities for agency, rational thought, but these can vary widely by person. So, with that in mind, let's situate Ambedkar. So he was born in 1891, died in 1956. He was born into a Mahar Dalit family, formerly called Untouchables. Um, Dalit is the, the sort of standard word, certainly in the academic literature these days. Uh, they were the 
Mahars were traditionally sweet sweepers, village servants. Any higher caste person could call on them at any time to do whatever they needed done, whatever they wanted done. So the original title, or the title of a paper that's under review connected to this is called Their Dignity Demands a Retinue. And that was a quotation from Ambedkar where he was noting that um, for the higher caste Hindu, when they're going out of town to visit someone, their dignity demands that they have a retinue of servants to follow them, and so they, the only retinue they can afford is, is the free uh, services of the untouchables, so they'll demand that they come with them. So untouchables will just have to drop everything that they're doing and follow this person out of town to a funeral or a wedding or something else, and, and that's their retinue. Um, oops. Okay. He was um, known for very high achievement. He was singled out by all of his teachers as a brilliant student. The Gaikwara Baroda, basically Maharaja, um, very rich, sponsored him for PhD study, sponsored him to university and then PhD at Columbia University in New York. Uh, he later went on to study law in London. He was admitted to the bar at Gray's Inn, just like Gandhi was, just like a lot of... Um, really prominent Indian persons at that time were. He led two political parties, served in the British Imperial Administration, and then he was tagged or tabbed to uh, be the lead drafter for the 1950 Constitution for post-independence India. And that's uh, quite a notable document for establishing affirmative action uh, well ahead of many other countries and, and uh, a fundamental charter of rights, that sort of thing. And it certainly bears the imprint of Ambedkar, his stamp. Um, and he was inaugural law minister from 1947 to 51, and he quit in part over women's equal status. So it wasn't just uh, Dalits he was concerned about, but also as law minister, uh, he wanted to um, he wanted a bill that would have given women equal right or more equal rights in marriage, but it was opposed, and he, and he resigned over it. <clears throat> so moral equality for him, as I think you're probably getting the sense. It was not just a theoretical exercise. It was an urgent, practical task. He was trying to work against a deeply embedded uh, social code that had you know, strong political ramifications that Dalits as untouchables were simply left out of any equation of equality, any equation of um, moral worth or really mattering, being able to be claims makers, any of that sort of thing. And this was rooted, as, as he pointed out several times, in karmic desert, the doctrine of karma, the idea that you had done something wrong in a past life that got you um, situated in this life as an untouchable, as a Dalit, uh, whereas other people, so you deserved the fate that had befallen you in this life, and if you observe your role well in the next life, you can be reborn uh, higher, or you might be. Okay, and, and here's a quote from him. Inequality was the soul of the law of Manu, and, and Manu was a, uh, a book of edicts from the lawgiver Manu, about 2,000 years old, and it prescribed very harsh punishments for Dalits who had offended um, the people of higher caste. So one of, the, one of the ones that he notes is that if you sit in, uh, let's say, a Brahmin's seat, you can have part of your buttocks cut off. Um, as a punishment, because you fouled the seed, you polluted the seed, and you know this is this is um, quite an old text, but 
when he was making the Constitution, when he brought out the Constitution, some of his critics said, you know, there's nothing Bharatiya about it. There's nothing Hindu-Indian about it. Uh, we had the laws of Manu, which you could have drawn from, but you completely ignored them, and Ambedkar had to face those challenges. But for him, Manu was, um, inequality was its soul. It pervaded all walks of life, all social relationships and departments of state. He says it had fouled the air, and the untouchables were simply smothered. And there is a photo, we'll come back to that, of him, or a portrait at the uh, at a 1927 um, protest where he burned the laws of Manu, which for the time was a very, it still is a very um, dramatic act. Okay, so Ambedkar gives us several reasons why we should embrace equality, why we should establish political equality, um, recognize moral equality socially. So the first one is is um, consequentialist. It's just practical. The objections to equality may be sound. And no one may have to admit that all men are not equal, and one may have to admit that all men are not equal, but what of that? Equality may be a fiction, but nevertheless one must accept it as the governing principle. Okay, why? Um, well, he offers practical consequentialist reasons. It will do the most good in society. So here's a quote from him. A statesman is concerned with vast numbers of people as neither the time nor the knowledge. So those are two things. Time, um, it's a practical knowledge. Uh, intellectually, it's impossible to know how to categorize people. We'll come back to that. To draw fine distinctions, treat each one equitably according to need or capacity. So what do you do? You must follow some rough and ready rule, and that rough and ready rule is to treat all men alike. And he says men consistently, as was the custom at that time. Uh, the doctrine of equality is glaringly fallacious, but taking it all in, it's the only way a statesman can proceed in politics. Okay. And he goes on to criticize Plato, and this is where I had hoped uh, Haig would be here to, to weigh in, because um, he certainly knows his Plato, uh, for, quote, the lumping together of individuals into a few sharply marked off classes. It's not possible to pigeon men into holes according to class. And, and he speaks a, a little bit of length about that. It's basically a charge of intellectual arrogance. Plato, by saying, well, some are born guardians, some are born you know, farmers, um, others, everybody has their role in society, and as long as you stick to that, to, to Ambedkar, that looked very much like the Varna system in India, which was uh, strict, rigid occupational categories. If you're born into a street sweeper uh, caste, um, that's, you're, you're one of the lower Varnas, one of the service, the service Varna, and that's where you stay. Um, Gandhi who campaigned most of his life against untouchability and was, was well known for that, um, did not oppose Varnas. He simply said, look, if you're born into a very high Varna or one that has high status, you simply should not look down on, on other people with lower status. So if you're a business person or a street sweeper, you should be treated as having the same value. And for Ambedkar, that just, that just didn't work. He wanted to annihilate all caste distinctions and Varna distinctions. So in later work, he offers both consequentialist and epistemic reasons, so practical and knowledge-based reasons you simply can't know for accepting equal social status, correcting for some social disadvantage. And, and this is, um, he actually developed a new form of Buddhism. He didn't accept all of the tenets um, that he found in the, the teachings of the, and the traditions uh, from Siddhartha Gautama, uh, but he really liked Buddhism as um, a religion which he saw as, as appropriately recognizing human equality. And uh, I'll show you a quote later on relating to that, but here is he draws from the teachings of the Buddha um, this the following chain of argument, and it's got 16 steps, but I'll, I'll talk about 14 of them here, because I think, I think it's interesting. So he says, 
Yes, men are born unequal, some are robust, others are weaklings, some have more intelligence, some have more capacity, others have less, some are well-to-do, others are poor. All have entered the struggle for existence. In this struggle, if inequality is recognized as the rule of the game, the weakest will always go to the wall. Now, it's not strictly a moral argument, though. He's not strictly saying, and that's wrong. He's saying, should this be allowed to be the rule of life? Well, uh, some people think yes, some people think yes. It, it brings us to the survival of the fittest. But then he offers um, an epistemic reason not to accept that. He says, is the fittest the best from the point of view of society? We can't know that. Um, the fittest might simply be associated with the physically most strong, but there may be other capacities, other, other character traits that are much more important if you're talking about a vital, dynamic society. It might be more important to have empathy. It might be more important to have um, you know, intelligence uh, for technology, etc., etc. And he says, because of this doubt, religion pe preaches equality, or the right religion, he would say, preaches equality. Equality may help the best to survive, even though the best may not be the fittest, what society wants is the best and not the fittest. So um, if, uh, if we had a Nietzsche scholar in the room, they would say, oh, well, that's exactly the opposite of what Nietzsche said. Nietzsche said, basically, worship the strong um, and society will do well. And, and I'm better saying you can't know if the strong is the best. So leaves the best unspecified, encourages intellectual humility about which among our distinctive capacities should be valued, and gives reason to establish basic social and political equality. So. A, reasons of efficiency. Elsewhere, he makes an argument very much like Plato, where he says, um, if you establish inequality, you're just hurting yourself because you tell people in a whole class, you know, millions and millions and millions of Dalits, that they can't do certain jobs. Well, they might be actually the best person for that job. So pure efficiency, but then also we can't know what the best capacities are, what the best qualities. So, and this anticipates a number of recent treatments. A number of uh, recent philosophers and theorists have, have argued that uh, something right along those lines. And also, um, I think an important implication of Abedkar's argument is that pigeonholing by fitness could just compound injustice. And this has implications for the way we do things these days, where um, you know, if you've got an accelerated program in school, uh, where you single out the kids who seem to be the best prepared and you say, okay, we're going to devote special resources to them. For Ambedkar, that might simply be compounding injustice by singling out the kids who've already had the greatest advantages. You know, they've had the families who could afford the tutoring and to send them to good schools and that sort of thing. So he also gives us more direct groundings for dignity and high equal moral worth. And, and at this time, I want to point out, this was in the air because um, we were leading up to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. He was writing some of these in the 1940s, mid-1940s, late 1940s. And there was a lot of talk about human dignity and human rights. Now, he'd been talking about human rights since 1919 or so um, because he came from a tradition in India. Um, he, he was a... Um, he, they they weren't um, alive talking to each other at the same time, but he was inspired by the work of Foulet, who was a, an early social reformer in the 1900s, who himself had done a lot of work with uh, Tom Paine, Thomas Paine's work on human rights. So there was a strand of human rights liberalism in India, and Ambedkar, I think, was was sort of the uh, the apex of that, um, at least for my money. So he's talking about human rights, and he wants to establish dignity, but. Dignity is means something a little different to Ambedkar, and I think 
this highlights reasons why we might not want to talk in terms of dignity, why, why we might not want to make that our master variable if we're talking about what to constitutionalize, how, what to ground, what's worthy about humans. Um, so it's most often associated with haughtiness, demands for servility from Dalits by higher caste Hindus. So he tells this story, uh, and he tells a number of stories of where, where this sense of dignity is there. But this is a story about a guy who went on a pilgrimage. He was a Dalit, and he went on a pilgrimage, and uh, he came back, and he wanted to sort of um, talk to his uh, you know, fellow Dalits, fellow untouchables, and treat them to a nice dinner and you know, just sort of uh, share his good fortune at being able to go on this pilgrimage. And so he got some butter, which is called ghee. And um, this became a problem. And they were actually attacked by a group of caste Hindus who had uh, sticks, they're called lathis, and they were beating them until they ran away from their dinner. And Ambedkar explains this by saying the, the caste Hindus of Chakwara thought otherwise and in righteous indignation avenged themselves for the wrong done to them by the untouchables who insulted them by treating ghee or butter as an item of their food, which they ought to have known could not be theirs consistently with the dignity of the Hindus. So he's got this consistent um, presentation of this, of this word, this connotation, the dignity of the Hindus. So it's sort of a haughty, fragile dignity, uh, easily offended, and when it's offended you have to um, punish someone. And I'll just point out that Ambedkar also talks a lot about the African-American experience, slavery, but also the way African-Americans were treated. And um, we could have, uh, I think we could have very, if, if Ambedkar had lived in America, we'd be talking about that. So it's not just related to caste, uh, uh, you know, and, and of course America's got its great, it's got Du Bois, it's got uh, Martin Luther King. But I think, um, at least for my purposes, Ambedkar's writing about exactly what I'm interested in, so he's the one for me to read. Um, so just a, a single slide on Jeremy Waldron. Uh, he's been one of the people, so about the last 10 years, there's this, been this bloom of thought on dignity. So it's been critiqued, and other people have said, well, wait a minute, no, there's something to that. There's something valuable about this. We should hang on to this idea, um, to this idea of, of basic moral equality. Um, and, you know, someday we're going to, if you, if you watch Twilight Zone at all, someday we're going to have to talk the aliens into not eating us, right? So we'll have to say, we'll have to explain to them why humans are a valuable species. Um, well, that's one of the things political theorists have been trying to do lately. So Waldron has come out with this idea that, um, look, we can reclaim dignity, we can recast it. So in the past, you had aristocratic status, uh, people would, would claim dignitas, um, so the, uh, the nobility would, would say that there's a certain dignitas that comes with our rank. And he says now that's a, a, a sense of dignity that we can ascribe to every single citizen. We're all equal, democratic citizens especially, um, and we all have that rank. And so Waldron says, quote, every man a Brahmin, every woman a queen, end quote. Now you can anticipate the problems Ambedkar might have with the idea that every person is now a Brahmin, because Brahmins were at the top of the hierarchy in his uh, in his social sphere. So some of the problems, and this is a separate article, I just want to note this, but some of the problems highlighted uh, in Ambedkar's work for a conception of dignity like this is that, well, dignity is a rank or a legal status. If it's not innate, it can be lowered or lost. And that's not just a theoretical um, consideration that's when you show up with your child at the U.S. border and the U.S. government separates your child from you, possibly never to be seen again. We're still not sure if some of these kids are going to be 
reunited with their parents. And that's where claims that I'm a human being, I deserve better than this treatment, actually hold some serious practical weight. And um, if we tie dignity, if we tie our worth as human beings too closely to citizenship, then it's too easy for the state to say, you're not a citizen, you deserve different, you know, categorically different treatment. We don't have to treat you the same way we treat a citizen. Um, and I think that can be very problematic. And I think um, Bedkar helps us avoid something like that. And then there are connotations for dignity per se. As, as, as Waldron says, it's, uh, this is a quote from Walden. It's, quote, an uprightness of bearing, self-possession and self-control. Self-presentation is someone to be reckoned with. And one of the things um, Bedkar helps us to see is that um, a lot of the people he was fighting for dignity uh, on their behalf uh, were not people holding themselves upright. They were people who um, had traditionally, you know, you look at the ground, you hunch your shoulders. There's, there's a, there's a, you know, Foucault would have a lot to say that ab about that. There's a, there's a way of being a person of very low status, and, and Dalits were expected to do that, or again, they were, they were punished um, if they weren't. You know, there's this trope of the uppity Dalit that uh, you still hear sometimes. So Ambedkar wanted to... Ambedkar offers us a different way to think about it, where, where this person, who might indeed have to adopt an attitude of servility toward a higher caste person, a higher status person, um, would, for Ambedkar, be able to also be a person of equal worth. And this is um, something besides demanding deference from others. He sought to establish the recognition of innate worth, where they would all be extended, um, and he evolved over the years. He first called it fraternity, then it was social endosmosis, which is fluid relations of belonging on equal standing, and then it was maitri, which is sort of a recognition of equal standing, but also an, ex an expression of concern uh, for beings, and, and maitri expends to animals, too, which I'll talk about in a moment. And I think his ultimate ideal was that all people should be treated with respect and reverence. Um, so for this person, that's a, that's a very poor Dalit family in 1946. Uh, these would be the people he was talking about, um, you know, who, deserve, who also deserve respect and reverence. Later on, he talked about the tribal peoples who lived in even more challenging conditions often, you know, where they, you know, no, no access to medical care, uh, nutrition was very uneven, etc. But he said they deserve respect and reverence also. They deserve equal citizenship under this constitution. So... Why? Here's Ambedkar's question in 1946. Why must the individual be the end and not the means of all social purposes? Why should we sacrifice our most pre precious possessions in our lives to defend the rights of the human person? What's so valuable about the human person? And here's where he shifts to capacities, trying to say there's just something valuable about a person. So what's the justification for treating us all as having high equal moral worth, okay, establishing some rights? Well, he gives us several. Um, first... I think this is an interesting one simply because it speaks to uh, directly to a Hindu audience. So he did a lot of study on his own, and he found that um, there are different there are a number of different traditions in Hinduism. But he said, "Look, there's this major tradition that we all know about in the Upanishads, um, where it's it actually does focus on equality, not on graded inequality." Um, and this is the doctrine of I am Brahma. And it, it might seem just rhetorical, but I think it also is interesting in that he identifies an imperative to democracy 
from this imperative to equality. And I think it's, it's an interesting chain of argument that actually helps us to ground democracy if we accept equality for other reasons. So you might not accept the Hindu version of this, but um, here's his quote. I am Brahma. Now, Brahma was the all soul that we're all part of, and we're all equally part of it. So he said, here's this doctrine of equality within Hinduism, um, and you accept that anyway, so how can you accept that but then not accept political equality? Um, so, and he says, it may appear to be an impudence, but it can also be an assertion of one's own worth. And then, uh, then he go, a little later he says, democracy demands that each individual should have every opportunity for realizing its worth. It also requires that each individual shall know that he is as good as everybody else. Those who sneer at aham brahmasmi, I am Brahma, as an impudent utterance, forget that the other part of the mahav, Mahavakya, sorry, <laughs> is that thou art also Brahma. So it's equal recognition, a disposition to reciprocity that he sees as the foundation for democracy. And then, he, as we've seen, he also turned to Buddhism. And I think his treatment of Buddhism is interesting because he consistently treats it as a religion not that establishes equality, um, where, you know, that's been common. Uh, in the, One of the critiques of human rights is that it flows from this... Tr- Christian tradition where we all have the spark of God in us and that's what makes us special as human beings. And for Ambedkar, um, at one point he noted that, but when he speaks about Buddhism, he says, you know, the good thing about Buddhism is it recognizes that we're all of equal worth. Um, it doesn't create us as equal worth. It's not anything the Buddha said. It's not anything, you know, spiritual. It's simply that we have equal worth and Buddhism is good for recognizing it. So what he told people in a 1936 speech was, religion is for man, not man for religion. Forgetting human treatment, convert yourselves away from Hinduism. Now, telling people to convert themselves is actually a very dramatic and, and uh, that'll get you a lot of criticism, might even get you, um, you know, targeted, um, even today. So... He cites other distinctive human capacities, and we've seen these going back to some of the Greek thinkers, the, certainly the Roman thinkers, the Roman um, the Cicero and some of the others. But you know, we've got rational thought. We can exercise agency. We have we have creativity. We're claims makers. We can tell the aliens, please don't eat us. We're valuable beings. You know, you'll, 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 I think you'll like us if you get to know us. Um, so, for him, the distinctively human function is reason. Uh, we can meditate, we can observe, cogitate, study, discover the beauties of the universe, enrich our lives, control the animal elements in our lives. Okay, control the animal elements in our lives. Now, a couple of things there. Is this just speciesism? So one of the critiques about people who try to ground human rights, especially in some big gap between human animals and non-human animals, one of the problems, um, that that's one of the, that, that becomes a real problem for a lot of critics, and there are a lot of them out there these days, who will say, A, that treats animals as if they have no worth and no interests, um, as if they're just um, you know, food to be eaten, the way we're trying not to get the aliens to treat us. The problem with that is some animals have higher developed capacities than some humans. You know, if you're severely mentally handicapped, etc., um, you know, simply saying that all humans are higher in whatever capacity you can name than all animals, it's going to be false on its face often. Uh, and then it also doesn't treat humans or non-human animals with enough concern. Um, so Ambedkar here would seem to be drawing this distinction between humans and non-human animals in that objectionable way. I think, um, I think there is that, but I think there are also some other considerations that make his work more nuanced. So one of the first ones is... Can I just ask a question about yes. the previous slide? Yes. We'll go back to the previous slide. Is that possible? 
Richard Luck control the animal elements in his life. Was he talking about animal elements within us? Or yes, yes. Because um, that's how I took it. But then your discussion was more about well, an, right, animals. animal elements within us. Um, it's he's making this break between humans and non-human animals that the critics don't like. So they, um, the the people who criticize this sort of break, will say that um, it's. When you say that humans are better than animals because we don't do things that animals do, it actually uh, reduces animal worth too far. These are the same folks who argue for vegetarianism and, and you know, not treating animals as, as resources simply to be used, but treating them as, as beings that have their own interests. Now, they have lesser, their thought is less complex than ours for the most part, but that's their problem with it. So, and, and other places, um, so he's, he's not like Kant, who seemed to say, although there's some discussion about this, who seem to say that animals have no worth in themselves. Um, but what he is saying, one thing, is that uh, Daleks were often treated as, as categorically lower than animals, and I'll, I'll show you that in a moment. And when he gets to Maitree, he explicitly excludes animals in the circles of moral concern. And finally, what I think is most interesting about his work at the end of the day is that he gives us a reason to situate dignity and high moral worth opposite atrocity and humiliation, not opposite animals. So I think you can you can follow on Bedkar and still say that animals have some worth. That's not just how they taste. Okay. So animals and Dalit status. Um, so he consistently would say things. So in his first meeting with Don, Gandhi, he famously said, this country treats us worse than cats and dogs. And at the Mahad water tank, where he burned the Mount of Smriti, um, one of the things he noted in a speech was that even Dalit's animals, even the animals of the untouchables, the cows they kept, um, the other animals, the goats, could drink at the tank, but Dalits were not allowed to because they would pollute it. So in one sense, he calls for Dalits to be treated with the same reverence shown to the cow, of course, with treatment appropriate to human capacities. Um, and he, he speaks at some length about that, about the... the um, where the, uh, the idea that, that untouchability came from, he associates it with um, Dalits eating cows, because they were the ones who had to remove the dead cows from the village, and they would typically consume beef as well. So Dalits had been treated worse than cats and dogs. Gandhi's ideal of village simplicity would keep them in such a state. So when he's talking about falling into animal state, he's usually critiquing Gandhi, where he's saying uh, this, this vision Gandhi had, you know, where we'd all be spinning our own clothes, and we would you know, reject... Um, uh, these complex industrial societies that everybody, every other country is moving to. He says under Gandhism, he's going to keep us like we've always been. We've always lived this life. We, you know, we're lucky if we have a spinning wheel. So he says, the common man must keep on toiling ceaselessly for a pittance, remain a brute. In short, Gandhism with its call of back to nature means back to nakedness, back to squalor, back to poverty, and back to ignorance for the vast mass of the people. And they were famous rivals, Ambedkar and Gandhi. And this is, this is no criticism that I'm offering of Gandhi, but this is just how Ambedkar made his arguments. Okay, and then when we get to Maitri, this uh, later on in his life, fifties uh, especially, he started talking about his evolving ideal of political equality, reciprocity within democracy, especially, um, became the Buddhist Maitri, which is extending fellow feeling to all beings, not only to one who's a friend, but also to one who's a foe, not only to man, but to all living beings. 
And then when he led 300,000 followers into this new version of Buddhism that he had developed um, in 1956, just shortly before the end of his life, one of their vows was, I shall be compassionate to all living beings, I shall nurture them with care. Um, so there's this stewardship approach that's, that's also been critiqued, but that's for another day. Okay, and then finally, last, uh, last bit of his um, thought on this, innate worth versus atrocity. So I think he situates high equal moral worth opposite humiliation and atrocity rather than really degradation into animal state. Now, humiliation is, is publicly being treated as an inferior class of person, uh, which was standard for, um, you know, this. it's what he decried as the treatment that Dalit standardly had. And atrocity is abusing someone in a publicly humiliating way. So... It's actually defined in the 1989 Prevention of Atrocities Act, Scheduled Castes and Scheduled Tribes Act. So any, uh, you're forbidden by law from treating someone uh, with the, sta- the ritual punishments that Dalits traditionally were treated um, by. So it bars actions, it, uh, quote, intentionally insults or intimidates with intent to humiliate a member of a scheduled tribe or a scheduled caste or scheduled tribe in any place within public view. And that means that when somebody does something that you find impudent, if they're a Dalit and you're a higher caste person, you can't strip their clothes off and parade them naked through the village. You can't make them eat human excrement. Um, you can't do these other sort of ritual punishments that, that reinforce their, their inferior status or their perceived inferior status. So this was very explicit in the act. Okay. And what Ambedkar said was, in a famous speech... In 1935, unfortunately for me, I was born a Hindu untouchable. It was beyond my power to prevent that. But I declare that it is within my power to refuse to live under ignoble and humiliating conditions. I solemnly assure you I will not die a Hindu. So this was very famous. Um, one of, as you might expect, one of the reasons he's only now becoming uh, much more known is because for a long time after his death, um, the, uh, the government, which is uh, mostly still higher caste Hindus, and uh, a lot of other people in positions of power just weren't all that willing to bring out his, uh, his books in you know, definitive volumes. And it took a lawsuit against the government of Maharashtra state to actually have his, his uh, collected works released. They were sitting in a storeroom for a while. But you might, you might get a sense of why people might have been upset with him. Um, so to sum up, he offers what I think is an instructive plural grounding for high equal moral worth um, and corresponding high status, equal political standing. He gives first consequentialist reasons to affirm equal political status and social status by extension. It's in society's interest to affirm equality for everyone, to embrace the fiction of equality, even if it is a fiction. He gives doctrinal reasons within Hinduism, uh, within Buddhism, and he even uh, finds Christianity at one point. And finally, reasons based in distinctive human capacities, which I think are the ones that he really put the most weight on in the end. Um, there's a final objection to take up, which is, wait a minute, if we're worthy because we have distinctive capacities, and yet what you're telling us is we've got to develop these capacities, isn't that circular? And what Ambedkar said is the same thing that uh, John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor Mill had said uh, some years earlier in, in, in relation to women, which is, well, actually it's the social and political institutions which have kept people um, stunted in their development. You know, you can't... Yes, you can say humans have a capacity for freedom. Somebody might say, well, aren't a lot of people slaves? How are they free? You say, no, they have the capacity. You're keeping them in a condition of slavery. So that, that would have been his point. And he, he did make that point. So what are the implications? Last slide. 
I th- he offered his groundings to make the case for political equality. And um, unusual among political theorists, he was actually able to put his work very, into very direct practice. So as I, as I mentioned, that 1950 Constitution uh, looks very much like what Ambedkar wanted. He didn't get everything he wanted, but certainly the fundamental rights the affirmative action, the electoral reservations for Dalits and other groups were exactly what he'd been arguing for for a very long time. Gandhi's vision was enshrined in the directive principles, which are non-binding. So it's aspirational, but non-binding. Um, so in, in many ways, it's Ambedkar's constitution. I mean, Nehru and many other. He was just the lead drafter. But um, And so we see enshrined in the constitution this idea of equality for uh, and for liberty, fraternity, equality. He loved the French Revolution uh, triumvirate, and uh, th- that was in the preamble. Those were the first lines of the Constitution. So I think his thought can help to reinforce the case for ascribing innate equal moral worth and equal actual status for persons. It makes a prima facie case for universal human rights. I think there, there are some links to be drawn yet, and I try to do that in the book, uh, following many other people. And the potential importance of constitutional democracy. So for my purposes, he helps me a great deal in making my argument that insisting on cosmopolitan moral principles, which are universalist moral principles, which try to treat the interests of all persons equally, um, I think he helps me make that argument against some dominant social codes which would reject an argument like that. And against, of course, the, the, this blood and soil nationalism that's been rising around the world and in the UN yesterday. Um, and I think that's it. So happy to take any questions. <laughs>